Our text today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the subject of preparing for marriage and a couple sermons from this chapter dealing with that important subject as well. First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. For I would that all men were even as myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. What is the role of parents in preparing their children for marriage? The answer to that uh, question has significantly shifted in the last hundred or so years. Before 1900, one could safely assume that he would hear that it is primarily the parent's role to prepare children for marriage. However, after uh, the year 1900 or so, attitudes began to swing more and more in the direction that it is primarily the child's role to prepare himself or herself for marriage. I'm not saying that a child shouldn't be preparing himself or herself for marriage as well. But there has been a, a distinct shift from the role of parents in preparing the children for marriage. Whereas before 1900, the parents played a very significant part in supervising and chaperoning a young couple. After 1900, parents increasingly began to let young couples oversee and attend to themselves with little or no parental supervision. I want you to see this Lord's Day that when we as parents abdicate and surrender our rightful place to lovingly prepare our children for marriage and shift that responsibility solely upon their shoulders, I would submit that we have ourselves as parents violated the fifth commandment. We have violated the fifth commandment. Listen to a portion of the larger catechism in regard to the fifth commandment. Now, in this question, question 130 from the larger catechism is talking not about the sins of inferiors, of children, uh, but of the sins of superiors, if you will, of parents toward their children. So, what are the sins, the question asks, what are the sins of superiors, or in this case, of parents? This is the just a summary of just 
the larger question. But the sins of superiors or parents are careless exposing or leaving our children to wrong, temptation, and danger. Careless exposing or leaving our children to wrong, temptation, or danger. There's a place to allow our children to learn certain lessons that they need to learn. But this is certainly not one of them in allowing them to prepare themselves to be solely and primarily responsible in preparing themselves for marriage. I cannot think of a system more susceptible to exposing our children to temptation, sin, and danger than the modern dating scene. Consider the effects of modern dating. One million teen pregnancies each year in the United States. Date rapes. Sexually transmitted diseases. Bitter rivalry and jealousy, emotional scars and regrets for years to come, and even teen murders and suicides through love triangles, etc., etc. And be assured that professing Christian families are not immune from these devastating consequences. Where were the fathers while their children were led to and exposed to such dreadful temptations, sins, and dangers. Well, one thing is for sure. The fathers were not with their children. For if they had been, their children would have been placed, would, would have been placed, and should say not placed, in that situation in the first place. Dating does not prepare children, I would submit to you, for the lifelong commitment of marriage. That covenant of marriage. Rather, dating prepares children for broken relationships, broken engagements, and broken marriages. Because that is what dating is all about. Jumping from one date to the next date to the next date, going steady, breaking off, etc., etc. It almost becomes a joke. You know, who are you going with this week? The Lord uh, has taught us in Matthew 7:17, even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. When we evaluate the rotten fruit that comes from dating, we are led to conclude that the tree of dating is rotten to its very roots. What is the biblical alternative to child-supervised dating? Well, I'd suggest that it's a parent-supervised courtship. And as I said earlier, in the next two weeks, we want to consider some issues parents should address with their children in preparing their children for marriage. And it's not too young uh, to begin training your children. They don't have to be 16, 17, and 18 before you think in terms of preparing them for marriage. Even while they're young, you can be praying that God would help 
your children and you can pray so in their presence that God would help them to be chaste and pure waiting for that person that God has prepared for them in the future preparing even that future partner uh, that your child will yet marry you can through various ways even while your children are very young instruct them by way of your example by way you behave in your own marriage as to what is important in their marriage in preparing them for that marriage as well those of you who yet have young children I would say have the advantage of being able to begin while your children are quite young but even if your children are older and still at home how much better to risk a few storms in the home and yet patiently and lovingly instruct your children in the scriptural approach to marriage than to cast them out into the storms in the world where your oversight will be very, very limited. From our text this Lord's Day, we're going to answer two questions. The first question is, for whom is marriage? And second, for what purpose is marriage? Next Lord's Day, we'll focus our attention on the question, by whom is the relationship to be supervised prior to marriage? By the parents or by the children? So, first of all, that first question, for whom is marriage? Beginning with 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul answers certain questions that were posed to him by members of the Corinthian church concerning a single life versus a married life, concerning issues of separation, issues of divorce, and issues of remarriage. And concerning the proper supervision of parents over their children prior to marriage. Is marriage for everyone? No, not necessarily. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 9, uh, Paul says that uh, he had a special gift given to him by God, a gift of celibacy. And so he says that he had this gift and he did not even desire to be married. He desired that the time spent with in the home, the married couple, with children, be spent in the kingdom of God and serving the Lord in ways that he would not otherwise have been able to do with all of his attention, with all of his time and resources. So not everyone is intended to be married. But we must uh, distinguish here between a temporary celibacy and a permanent celibacy. On the one hand, Christians, by means of God's providence, may temporarily be called upon to exercise a celibate life, free of that physical intimacy found in marriage. For example, those prior to being married. Now, they may not have a gift of permanent celibacy, but until they're married, they are to remain celibate. They are to remain pure and chaste in mind and affections 
and embody. How about those who lose a spouse by way of death? Well, until they should remarry, they must remain chaste and pure as well. Celibate. What about after a lawful divorce? Well, until one is lawfully remarried, one is called by God to remain chaste and pure before God. And even at times, in the lives of those who are married, there will be times where, due to our calling, due to travel, that we may be away from our spouses for periods of time. God calls us to be chaste during that period of time, to be faithful to the covenant that we have made with our spouses. Do not engage in activities, whether with the eyes, whether with the ears, or with any other part of our body that would compromise that commitment that we have made, that covenant we have made with our spouses. So there is a general grace of continency and self-restraint needed in the life of all Christians. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. All forms of sexual immorality. However, there is also a specific grace or gift of celibacy in which a Christian receives from God the permanent ability to live in a single state with contentment and peace so as to devote more and more time to the kingdom of Christ. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 19.12, There be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That's not a, a physical act that they do. It's a spiritual commitment they make that they will remain celibate and unmarried in order to further Christ's kingdom. Matthew 19.12 Understand then that the primary reason for the gift of permanent celibacy in the life of a Christian is not to travel more, is not to lavish upon oneself the pleasures of life, is not to show one's disdain for the opposite sex, is not to run and hide from certain fears about married life, but is rather to be able to use that gift so as to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with more time, with more resources, with more abilities than he or she would otherwise have. That's the primary reason for the gift of celibacy. And the life of a Christian is to serve Christ even to a greater degree than they they would be able otherwise to do by way of time and resources and energy, etc., etc. How does one know whether he or she has the gift of permanent celibacy? 
Well, if you're married, I can guarantee you, you don't have it. Primarily by evaluating one's own desires for companionship and intimacy in marriage and for children and grandchildren to raise to the glory of God. God doesn't give us, you know, a supernatural revelation uh, from heaven whereby he cries out, you know, you are celibate or you have this gift of celibacy. It's more by way of thoughtful investigation, prayerful investigation as to just the desires that you have to serve Christ as well as the desires that you have to be married, to have children. Those types of desires are all things that should enter into this mix. As long as one can honestly live in contentment and peace without marriage, without being a parent, that one can assume that God has given to him or her the gift of celibacy. If one can just continue and it, it's just not important at all that they ever get married, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a permanent celibacy because only until you reach the end of your life will you know whether I suppose you are going to be permanently celibate. But for that period of time, it's just not important to you. And so you're just not thinking about those types of things. In your mind, there are more important things with regard to goals that you have by way of serving Christ. And you want to see those goals realized in your life. However, just because some have the gift of celibacy, they ought not to think for a moment that they are beyond being tempted with sexual sin or even falling into sexual sin, especially if they do not take wise and necessary precautions to guard themselves from tempting situations. The Apostle Paul, I would submit, had this gift of celibacy according to 1 Corinthians 7.7. 7. There we read, For I would that all men were even as myself. He's speaking about his celibacy. But every man hath his proper, proper gift of God. One after this manner and another after that. You see, it's a gift from God both to marry. God gives a special gift to those to marry as well as a special gift to those to remain celibate. God gives a gift, he says, Paul says here, again I read, but every man hath his proper gift of God one after this manner and another after that. Paul does say in the next verse, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. It's not a sin. It is something good if you have received the gift of celibacy and use it for God's glory. That's good. But he goes on in verse 9 and says, if you cannot contain, 
due to you having this other gift that you are to be married, then marry. You do not sin in marrying. Paul is not arguing here the superiority of celibacy over marriage. That would be a misreading of the passage altogether. For both are gifts given by God to men and women. Nor is Paul legislating celibacy upon all of the members of the church of Corinth. For if both celibacy, that is the grace to be content as a single person for the sake of the kingdom of God and marriage are gifts given by God, then neither of them can be legislated as is done in the Roman Catholic Church, where being a celibate priest is legislated. You see, you can't legislate gifts. To some is to some are given those gifts of celibacy, to some are given the gifts to be married. You cannot legislate gifts and require everyone to either be married or require everyone to be celibate. That's depending upon the gifting God gives. Even though Paul had the gift of celibacy, he says in Romans 7.7, he was yet tempted with sexual sin. So, having the gift of celibacy doesn't mean that one is beyond being tempted with sexual sin. Gifts given to us by God do not carry us beyond the realm of being tempted with sin or falling into sin. We must always be aware, no matter what gifts God has given to us, that does not carry us beyond the realm of being tempted. The truth stated in 1 Corinthians 10.12 always applies to the Christian. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth Take heed, lest he fall. You remember the disciples had been given by Christ the power to cast out demons in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And yet, later on in their ministry, they could not cast out a demon that was in this poor boy. His father had brought his son for, the, for Christ to cast the demons out of this, this uh, young man. Christ, with three of his disciples, was on the Mount of Transfiguration, you'll recall. And when he came down the Mount, this incident occurred where the father approached Christ and said, your disciples couldn't cast this demon out. And I would suggest to you that it was due to their own pride in presuming upon that gift that they were unable to cast out the demon that tormented the boy. And whenever we presume that because of a gift that we have that we are beyond sinning, that we're beyond falling into sin or being tempted to sin, we have set ourselves up for a very, very big fall. We've set ourselves up to be crushed. And so you see, it's not only younger men and women who need to hear this warning, but those of us who are older as well. 
Consider the examples of some of the wisest and most godly men in the Bible who were older and yet yielded to sexual temptations. David, a man after God's own heart, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, went after many wives. His sexual temptation, the, the sexual temptations in his life led him into gross immorality and sin in this way, going after many wives when he was old. When he was old, the Bible says. It is the sin of presumption to state that one cannot or will not be tempted with sexual sin if he or she exposes himself or herself to such sins by spending time alone in a house together or in a parked car in a deserted area together. That's the height of presumption. The issue is simply that sin, sin, dear ones, lurks in us all and may be inflamed in us all in circumstances where we do not take necessary precautions. That's the plain truth. That's what the scripture teaches about the nature that we presently have. We can fall. Any of us can fall. How many ministers have fallen into sexual sins when they counsel distraught wives in very private circumstances and situations. There are always means, there are always means that might be used to avoid a totally private situation. No matter how important it is that you speak to someone of the opposite gender sex, there are always ways that you can protect yourself. And that is what we should always do. Regardless of your calling, regardless of what you do, there are ways to do that. There's not only the need to protect oneself from temptation in such situations, but also the need to protect one's character and reputation as well. For even if one has remained pure in a private situation with a man or a woman, Charges of impropriety may still be leveled by that very person you are with or by someone else. And if there are no witnesses, if there was no one there to be able to confirm that everything was above board, it can still hurt. It can still hurt. Protect yourselves, dear ones, in this way. When there are other options to doing things in that kind of a private situation, when there are other options available to us, why would we leave ourselves open to such temptations or such charges? What good reason would we possibly have for leaving ourselves open if there are any other options available? It should also be noted that even if one has the gift of celibacy, he or she should not take a further step to make a vow to God to be perpetually celibate. Such a vow, I would submit to you, is immoral because, for one thing, it presumes the divine attribute of omniscience on the part of the one taking the vow. One may not intend to ever marry, that's true, but in God's providence, Mr. or Mrs. Wright may come along and one's 
wholesome and lawful desires for marriage may be strongly evidenced at that particular time. Vows to God should always be concerning revealed duties we owe to God. And since marriage is not unlawful, but is rather the ordinary duty God has given to most people, one should not make such vows of perpetual celibacy. For example, to vow to remain celibate until God grants a godly husband or a godly wife is a lawful vow. But the unqualified vow to remain perpetually celibate is actually tempting God since we assume that divine prerogative of pretending to know God's secret will for our lives and assume we will always have grace, always have grace to be perpetually celibate when such grace has not been promised or received. What should one do who has taken such an unlawful vow? Well, he he or she should seek God's forgiveness for having made it in the first place, and God does forgive. Thank God he does forgive. He should renounce it and should sincerely repent of it. By taking such steps, it doesn't mean that a person is obligated to marry. It simply means he or she should not make a vow to the effect that they will never, ever become married. Listen to the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith in this regard, chapter 22, section 7. No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God, or what would hinder any duty therein commanded, or which is not in his own power, and for the performance of which he hath no promise or ability from God, and which respects monastical vows of perpetual single life. That is the vows the Roman Catholic priests take, perpetual single life. Professed poverty and regular obedience. All of these are vows that priests take in the Roman Catholic Church are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. If, however, a Christian can honestly say that he or she desires in God's good time to marry and to raise children to God's glory, then clearly the special gift of celibacy particularly a more permanent celibacy, does not evidence itself in that person's life. What Paul makes clear from verses 6 through 9 is that it is good for a Christian to remain single to the glory and service of Christ, provided he or she does not have the gift of celibacy, of permanent celibacy. But if that gift has not been given by God, it is good and lawful for one to marry to the glory of God. As we see also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. One can neither argue that celibacy nor marriage is a more sanctified state in which to live. It simply depends upon the gift and the calling of God in each person's life. Now, these matters just mentioned must be kept in mind by all parents in regard to the training of their children. 
On the one hand, for parents to require or pressure a child toward an unqualified celibacy who has no desire to remain single is wrong, no matter how well-intentioned the parent may be. See, the parent was, was devastated by a marriage. And that parent doesn't want that child to go through the same thing. And so encourages the child not to ever get married. That's sinful for the parent to do that. That is not what God requires. It's not what God tells us about. And it's no different. To require that of a child is no different than what the Romish church, the Roman Catholic Church requires of her priests, that they be not married. It will, in many cases, either lead to, if that's done by the parent, it will lead to disobedience and division where the child will rebel or perhaps elope or lead to various forms of fornication and immorality. On the other hand, on the other hand, for parents to require or pressure a child toward courtship, engagement, or marriage who has no desire in that direction at that time, but is content to remain single, is equally wrong and may in fact be working directly against the gift of God given to the child and the will of God for that child's life, no matter how well-intentioned the parent may be in that case. Parents, we must not communicate to our children by our words or our deeds that to have little or no desire to be married is somehow weird or unnatural. We may be criticizing the gift of God in that child's life. I would suggest that's the flip side to the Romish error. That's the Protestant error to require marriage and to think that it's unnatural or weird for someone not to be married. Such pressure could have likewise disastrous results in leading children into marriages of mere convenience just to please the parents, which usually end in divorce or, or leading them into unnatural sexual behavior as they rebel against the pressure applied to them. Rather, we must direct their desires towards some specific work in the kingdom of Christ and assure them, no matter how much we might desire grandchildren, that serving the Lord and the calling that God has given to them is far more important than our own personal desires. Whether our children marry or not, what is most important is that they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation, that they love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that they bear the fruit of righteousness in their lives. As important as marriage is, it pales in comparison to the eternal souls of our children. The second question, which will take a much shorter amount of time in the sermon. The second question, for what purpose is marriage? Our confession of faith in chapter 24, section 2, I believe gives us a very succinct, concise summary the threefold purpose of marriage this is the way it's summarized in our confession of faith marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife 
for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with a holy seed and for preventing of uncleanness. We're going to talk about those three purposes very briefly. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we find each of these purposes for marriage revealed. (coughs) Parents, you ought to help your children to understand each of these purposes ever so clearly as they enter, especially into their teen years. First of all, for the mutual help of husband and wife. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 16. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Now, in this particular context, uh, Paul is addressing, what about those marriages where there are Christians and non-Christians in the same marriage? Does the non-Christian pollute the marriage so that the Christian has a right to simply leave the non-Christian and divorce that that non-Christian? Paul says no doesn't have a right to do that. And therefore, God says through the Apostle Paul, how do you know, O Christian woman, whether God hasn't ordained you to be the means by which your husband comes to Jesus Christ or vice versa? How do you know, O Christian man, whether God has not ordained that you be the one through which your wife come to Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that for the mutual help and benefit? It's certainly one aspect of mutual help and benefit, for sure. If one looks at Proverbs 31.12, we see there how the wife in that chapter uh, is of mutual help to her husband. In 1 Peter 3, 7, we find how the husband is of help to his wife in honoring her, in caring for her, in treating her as an heir of the grace of life along with himself. So there is mutual help. That's one of the purposes of marriage, mutually to help one another. Again, think about it. Actions speak louder than words. Do our children see us working together or working against one another to fulfill our obligation to be of mutual help to one another? Do they hear husbands or wives tearing down one another in a shameless and critical fashion? Do they hear from our lips mutual encouragement Mutual thanks and mutual appreciation for one another. Do they see us repent for our sins when we have sinned against one another? Do they observe our mutual affection in kind words and loving embraces? And do they hear the patience in our voices, husbands, as we instruct our wives in the faith? Do they see companions, friends, lovers, or do they see living in the same house strangers, or even worse, 
enemies who despise one another? Are you teaching your children by your words and deeds in the home that the first divine purpose for marriage is for the mutual help of a husband and a wife? The second purpose, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with a holy seed. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, it says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. This is not a personal holiness. This is a federal holiness whereby they are viewed as being in covenant with God. They are accounted as covenant children, set apart as God's children, and are to be treated accordingly by virtue of being born to at least one Christian parent, if not two Christian parents. Children born to Christian parents, God views in a different way than he views those who are born to non-Christian parents by virtue of the promises made. That doesn't mean the children of non-Christian parents can't become Christians. It doesn't mean they can't come into a covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But God makes special promises to Christian parents and to their children. And to their children. And so one of the reasons here for Paul, that Paul argues that where you have an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife married to a believing spouse is that they are to remain together and that the unbeliever doesn't pollute the marriage because the issue is holy. Because the children are accounted holy unto God. Since it is lawful not only for Christians to marry, but for all to marry, Christian or non-Christian alike, it is likewise a purpose in the marriage of non-Christians to increase mankind with a legitimate issue. For the sake of order, for the sake of contracts, etc., etc., God has even amongst non-Christians ordained marriage. He doesn't want, just because a couple might be non-Christian, he doesn't say, well, it's okay to shack up. It's okay to just live together. There still is a purpose, even in that case, for non-Christians to marry according to God's ordinance even if they do not acknowledge God, which they should, but even if they don't, there's still a reason. And that is to, again, have a legitimate issue of children. But the purpose in the marriages of Christians is to increase not only mankind with a legitimate seed, but to increase the church with a holy seed. Dear ones, children are not an inconvenience. 
an interruption or intrusion into marriage, they are a blessing from God. And children are one of the purposes for which God has established marriage in the first place. It is not our choice. Once we have entered into the estate of marriage to decide how many children we should have or when we should have them. Those matters rest with the Lord. The giving of children and the taking away of children is God's decision alone. And we must not presume to play the role of God by taking this right from Him. As your children grow, let them know that you desire as many grandchildren as the Lord will bless you with should God lead them to marry and to have children. But most of all, teach your children the importance of preparation and becoming a godly young man or young woman and why the one they court become engaged to and marry is a matter that will literally affect thousands of generations to come. God is the one who must save our children. But the ordinary means by which he does so is through faithful Christian parents who pray for and teach their children concerning their need of the Lord Jesus Christ and preparing those children to marry godly spouses. Thirdly, the third purpose for marriage for preventing of uncleanness, sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Likewise, in verse 9. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. That is to burn, be consumed with sexual passions and desires which may and do many times lead to sexual immorality. To prevent fornication of every kind, God has established marriage. According to Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Physical intimacy in marriage is pure. Physical intimacy in marriage is pure and even undefiled. It's desirable. To desire its lawful fulfillment in marriage is both lawful and good. And for that reason, the Apostle Paul admonishes those who are married likewise to fulfill this important purpose for marriage as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. In other words, don't withhold that due benevolence of physical intimacy from your spouse. He gives a, he gives a particular uh, qualification, says, except for prayer and fasting. But ordinarily, ordinarily, to simply withhold that sexual intimacy from your spouse without it being that reason due to illness due to those types of reasons is something that we 
sin by doing, Paul says. <clears throat> in, re- in rendering this due benevolence, that's the term that Paul uses, of sexual intimacy in marriage, it should always be expressed in love, gentleness, and respect for one another. Never in selfishness, rudeness, harshness, or immodesty. Parents, don't make the discussion of this issue of sexual intimacy in your family a a taboo. Something that you never will talk about. Obviously, you, you wait till your children are ready and perhaps are asking certain questions. But you be the ones to instruct your children. Don't let them learn from some kid down the street about those types of things. You be the one to instruct them and teach them when they are ready. Don't let some school teach your children about those important things. You be the one to instruct them and teach them about those godly things that God has given to us to instruct our children concerning. Your children are going to learn one way or another about those things. It's just a question of who's going to teach them. In conclusion, I have a couple of just very brief closing remarks for those who are presently single. First, you who are single, keep your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a figure of speech, obviously. Keep your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Keep your eye of faith upon your duties presently that God has given to you to do. We can become so wrapped up in these fantasies that we have when we're single about the right person. Maybe we believe that we have already seen Mr. Right or Miss Right. And so we're filled with all of these passions and desires, even at this point in our lives. And all I can do is encourage you single people that when you spend and you are consumed with those types of ideas and thoughts, all of that worry about whether this is going to work out or that's going to work out, you're spending so much unnecessary time uh, thinking about things that that you don't need to think about. When it is appropriate and right, there is a, there, and we'll talk, Lord willing, about those steps next Lord's Day. When it is appropriate and right, there is a process to go through by which you can be introduced to and by which you can get to know this person. But don't, again, worry yourself to death about those types of things. Be more consumed with what God is giving you to do presently, whether it's going to school, being a student, learning to, to do household types of chores, um, cooking, caring for you know, smaller children, helping the needy in your community, in your church. All of those things, be filled with those types of things rather than getting all wrapped up in the emotions and the passions that 
so many young people are wrapped up in today. I can guarantee you, dear ones, that it's very easy to make someone that becomes that ideal person, whether he or she is already in the picture or you would like for them to be in the picture, it's very, very easy for that person to become an idol to you. That you just spend all your time thinking about that person. And you can't hardly get anything else done because that's all you're doing. It's hard to even pray. And all of that comes from that, more often than not, is pain and heartache and broken hearts. Because we have not tried to corral our passions and our emotions. We've not made the effort that we ought to. But if we keep our our mind upon our duties, rather than being inflamed with our desires and passions, God will direct us to that right person. Nothing wrong with desiring a godly spouse. Nothing wrong with desiring someone whom you may already know uh, uh, at the right time. But what happens so often is we cannot control that passion and emotion and we get carried away. Watch that ever so carefully. I can guarantee you that if the Lord, however, is your first love, if he's your first love, you will find that place of peace and contentment regardless of your circumstances. I know waiting is hard. I'm sure that God is teaching you patience through your waiting. But place your focus on becoming more and more the Christian man or woman you should be God has placed you. Remember, you're not there in those circumstances by accident. God has placed you in those circumstances in order to teach you contentment in Christ. You are presently in Christ's school of discipleship. Are you learning from the Master? Are you learning from the Master? He's teaching you. But are you learning? Second, And finally, for those of you who are single parents, and obviously I speak to a greater congregation than the one that is gathered here in even addressing this issue, but for any who are single parents, are the marriages of your children thereby doomed to failure because of your divorce? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God even rescues and makes trophies of his grace. Marriages that were destroyed even as a result of your sin. God is able to redeem. God is able to save. God is able to make that which looks hopeless into something very beautiful. Your work in vain as a single parent is not in vain in the Lord. Your work is not in vain in the Lord, according to 1 Corinthians 15:58. I would simply have you remember, though Timothy's mother was not a single parent, she was married to a non-Christian, apparently. 
But the grace of God was manifest in Timothy's life to a large degree by means of this Christian mother who invested the time into her life or into his life. And so, again, I simply encourage you who may be discouraged because of past failed marriages, whether it was your fault, whether it was the other person's fault, Repent of the sin you've committed. Be honest before your children. Let them know that it's your desire to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in everything you do from this point on. Dear parents, we are teaching our children many lessons about men and women and about marriage every single day. Are we preparing them for a godly and loving marriage of companions between companions where mutual forgiveness and repentance reign or are we preparing them for a bitter relationship where two people simply exist in the same home but act more like strangers if not enemies which will you choose which of those will you choose just as Moses said to the people of Israel life and death are today set before you so life and death are set before you the people of God today. Forgiveness or bitterness is set before you today. Choose life and forgiveness through our gracious Savior, Jesus Christ, and teach your children the same. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, We do praise Thee and thank Thee that where where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And Lord God, we can all look back over the past few years in our marriages and we can see whether they issued forth in a divorce or not where we have failed miserably and where we stand in need of Thy grace. Well, Father, we pray that Thou would give to us, even now, the grace not to perpetuate that which we have done or are doing, but, Father, rather to make the changes necessary. Both, Lord, to be pleasing to Thee, most importantly, but for the sake of our children. We ask our Father that Thou would Watch over our children and give to them, Lord, a desire to be faithful in their present callings. That, Father, they would desire to to focus more on their duties than upon their emotions and their passions. We ask our Father that Thou would guide and keep them and direct them to faithful marriages. And, Father, those who have not been given the gift to marry but have been given the gift to remain single be with them comfort them use them mightily in the kingdom of Christ to do great exploits for, for the Lord Jesus Christ and may we again as parents be sensitive to the gifts which thou hast given to our children our Lord we thank thee for thy word that we have read 
which has been explained even to us today. We pray, Father, may we not only hear it, but may we go forth and do it by faith and to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.